Sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes wrong you see some bad Produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon This is Prison Pipeline. I'm Doug McVeigh The United States is a signatory to the three main international drug control conventions. That's the Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs in 1961, the Convention on Psychotropic Substances in 1971, and the United Nations Convention Against Illicit Traffic in Narcotic Drugs and Psychotropic Substances of 1988. The UN body that supervises the application of the International Drug Control Treaties is the UN Commission on Narcotic Drugs, which was established by the UN's Economic and Social Council in 1946. Now, in 2019, CND adopted a ministerial declaration on strengthening actions at the national, regional, and international levels. In the declaration, the member states resolved to review in the commission in 2029 the progress that's been made in implementing these policy commitments with a midterm review in 2024. CND has been conducting a sort of stock-taking of progress made in addressing several challenges that were identified in their 2019 ministerial declaration. They've carried out thematic discussions, two intersessional meetings, first in October and the second in December. Well, in this edition of Prison Pipeline, we're going to hear some voices from those thematic discussions. Let's start with Ambassador Laura Hill, the permanent representative of Colombia to the United Nations in Vienna. Colombia supported the statement read by Switzerland. As with respect to this challenge, we would like to add the following. One, coca cultivation is a manifestation of a lack of development. Thus, the drug problem is for us a development problem. Evidence two, evidence of the expansion of markets can also be seen in the destruction of the environment. Colombia is the world's most biodiverse country per square kilometer. We are facing environmental environmental devastation because of the drug economy and the market expansion in some regions like the Amazon Basin, where associated criminal activity to drugs, such as illegal logging, illegal mining, illegal land occupation, wildlife trafficking, are damaging the environment of the world's largest rainforest. Indigenous peoples and other ethnic minorities are suffering the consequences of this crime convergence, including displacement, mercury poisoning, and exposure to violence, particularly environmental defenders who are targeted by traffickers and armed groups. For us, the protection of the environment is also a development problem. And because the drug problem is a development challenge, we will no longer attack and persecute our farmers. We just adopted a new national drug policy with two pillars, one called oxygen, aimed at ending the dependence of the population on the drug economy, as well as avoiding the criminalization of peasants. It is mainly focused on territories, communities, people, and the environment that have been proportionally affected by the expansion of the drug market. The second pillar, asphyxiation, is aimed at dismantling and reducing the influence and capacity of criminal organizations that profit from drug trafficking. 
share. Taking into consideration the next session in March, and as we engage in this technical exercise, Colombia calls on the membership of the CND to turn the drug conventions into living documents. It is our duty to adapt them to the world, not to adapt the world to the conventions. Different interpretations of the conventions proliferate. Colombia believes that we need to face head on, head on the issue of the relevance of the conventions as they are written today. And we say all this because we believe we need an effective international legal regime for drugs. We also believe that if we keep giving our backs to the discussion of the relevance of the conventions, conventions to, today, to today's world, we will end up burying it. Thank you, Mr. Chair. That was Ambassador Laura Heal, permanent representative of Colombia to the United Nations in Vienna. Emily Christie is a senior advisor in human rights and law at UNAIDS. The UNAIDS Secretariat works closely with co-sponsors, including UNODC, WHO, and others, to support governments, community-led organizations, and others to implement the commitments of the Political Declaration on HIV-AIDS and the Global AIDS Strategy. This is including through monitoring, technical support, advocacy, and thought leadership, as well as convening. And I thought I'd use my time today to do a bit of the monitoring side and the advocacy and thought leadership side. So looking back over the last five years since uh, the political, uh, since 2019, in terms of HIV, not much has changed for people who use drugs. And that's a problem. So amongst the global population, we've seen a 38% reduction in HIV infections since 2010. And since 2019, a 13% reduction. But there's no evidence of an appreciable change for people who inject drugs. And in regions where we know the burden of HIV falls primarily on people who inject drugs, HIV incidence has actually risen significantly. For people who inject drugs, prevalence is still around seven times higher than for the rest of the adult population. And for those countries with disaggregated data, it's twice as high for women than men. Median prevalence is around about 5%, but that hide significant disparities and actually the range is from close to zero to 51 percent and that data those two points of zero and 51 percent simultaneously show us what is possible as well as how far we have to go as i mentioned we have the global AIDS strategy and the political declaration um, these were created by inputs from 160 countries and 10,000 individuals the strategy reflects the importance of enabling social legal environments, as well as decriminalization, discrimination and reduction in violence, as well as increased access to harm reduction services led by communities of people who use drugs. They reflect the recommendations in the updated WHO consolidated guidelines on HIV, hepatitis and STI prevention, testing and treatment for key populations as well. Having a look quickly at some of these targets and where we're at, if we look at decriminalization, it's true that we're seeing around about 60 countries now pursuing some kind of decriminalization approach, and we've heard some here as well. The devil is in the detail. We talk about alternatives to criminalization. Under the political declaration on HIV, the commitment is actually to reform or repeal any laws that create barriers to accessing services. 
This means that not only should we decriminalise, but ensure that what replaces it is also not creating similar barriers to the criminal laws. In many countries that report to UNAIDS, we're seeing administrative approaches that still amount to punitive approaches. Um, so 28 countries report that they still impose compulsory detention or rehabilitation in a closed facility, and another eight impose compulsory detention in the community. 17 countries are reporting uh, that drug use or possession constituted a legal basis for moving children from parental custody. Another 25 report that people who use drugs are actually disqualified from receiving antiretroviral HIV treatment. And in almost half the countries where fines replace prisons, civil society is reporting that fines are so high as to amount to a disproportionate punishment. And all of these are having a similar effect of undermining access to HIV services and uh, continuing levels of stigma and discrimination. Um, we are actually seeing that of countries reporting stigma and discrimination and violence, a median of 30% of people who use drugs are reporting experiencing stigma and discrimination just in the past six months. And 28% of people who inject drugs experienced violence in the past 12 months. And UNAs has actually created a new data collection tool to look at the, uh, um, the attitudes of law enforcement in relation to all key populations, including people who use drugs, and we'll have more data on that in the next few years. We've heard a lot around harm reduction, and there has been some discussion as to what the numbers are and how they've increased over time. Um, whether we're talking 88, 86, 92, uh, we're still looking at around about 100 countries not providing needle and syringe programs and not providing opioid agonist maintenance therapy. In 2019, we reported that only 1% of people who inject drugs live in countries with recommended coverage of needles and syringes and OAMT. Since then, no other country has reported meeting those targets. And the coverage of OAT is only around about 18%, well shy of the 50% target that we had. Just quickly on community, um, because we did have World AIDS Day uh, last Friday, um, which was the theme of let communities lead, as we've heard. Um, the strategy has targets on 30% of testing and treatment and 80% of prevention services being delivered by community and 60% of actions to achieve the societal enablers being led by community. Um, we're still far short of this target in many countries, although we have heard some excellent examples today of, um, of community leadership. But two-thirds of countries reporting to UNAIDS don't even have people who inject drugs involved in HIV policy development, and that's the most unrepresented key population in key decision-making. And finally, um, in terms of funding, it's still far below what is needed for people who inject drugs. Um, in many countries where HIV incidence is not changing or is actually increasing, um, and that's primarily in countries where people from key populations bear the burden of the epidemic, less than 1% of HIV funding is specifically targeted to key populations. Recently, we estimated uh, that to meet the 2030 targets, annual resources needed for people who inject drugs in lower and middle income countries comes to 2.7 billion US per year. Of the countries reporting how much money they spend on harm reduction, the total uh, last year was 58.2 million, which is 2% of what is needed. So we are off track. We're not going to end AIDS by 2030 for people who use drugs with the current trajectory. The CND has the power to help correct that course through realistic and honest discussion, and UNAIDS remains ready to support in this endeavour, in technical support to countries, and however else we can be useful. So thank you.
That was Emily Christie, Senior Advisor in Human Rights and Law at UNAIDS, speaking October 25th before the UN's Commission on Narcotic Drugs. You're listening to Prison Pipeline. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Helen Tegruja is a law professor and a member of the Human Rights Committee. Good morning or good afternoon. My name is Helen Tegruja, professor of public international law in Aix-en-Provence in France, but I'm also a member of the, of the Human Rights Committee uh, in charge of the monitoring of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Um, I would like just to um, say a little things about uh, uh, the Human Rights Committee dealing with uh, drug policy issues um, related to the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Uh, it's true that it's really a topic we discuss a lot uh, when we have uh, constructive dialogues with, uh, with the state parties and in general we express our concerns on uh, militarization of uh, um, counter um, drug um, policy, for instance, or a grave violation of human rights, such as the use of torture, the use of enforced appearances, uh, deprivation of liberty, arbitrary deprivation of life, or um, lack of uh, judicial guarantees. Um, the Human Rights Committee would like to share maybe three main uh, messages on, on that aspect or on that topic. First, when we have dialogue with states, we systematically highlight that uh, drug users or drug traffickers are right holders. Indeed, maybe they have committed uh, offenses under domestic law, but it cannot be used as an excuse to limit or to deprive these people from their right under the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So it's really something uh, the Human Rights Committee uh, does stress when we have dialogue with states. The second element uh, we, in general, in our dialogue with states uh, highlight is that when we talk about drug policy, we do not only talk about uh, access to health services, for instance, but we really talk about civil and political rights also. And um, especially states have uh, positive and negative obligation and in, in this context, for instance, uh, the very recent uh, judgment of the European Court of Human Rights delivered in September uh, 2023, Aeneas versus Italy, on positive obligation in context of uh, custody, uh, protection of a person, and a drug addict uh, is, is really important. States have negative and positive obligations. The third message we would like um, to convey, and in general we insist on this when we have states dialogue, is that indeed um, states might have the international obligation to fight against drug trafficking, but this cannot be done without respecting their human rights obligation under human rights treaties. So it's really important to have this uh, holistic and comprehensive approach to um, drug policy in relation not only to criminal law, but also human rights obligations. That was Alain Tegruja, a law professor and member of the UN's Human Rights Committee, speaking October 25th before the Commission on Narcotic Drugs during thematic discussions on progress made in addressing challenges identified by CND in its 2019 ministerial declaration. Boyan Konstantinov is a policy specialist in HIV, health and development at the UN Development Program. Currently, approximately 296 million people worldwide use drugs, with a concerning increase among young people in Africa. 
Criminalizing drug use contribute to the spread of HIV, with 1.6 million people who inject drugs living with HIV, representing shockingly one in every eight individuals. In 2022, the global prevalence of HIV among adults who inject drugs was about seven times higher compared to the general population. The use of stimulants and synthetic opioids further amplifies the risk of HIV transmission, such as during chemsex. Hepatitis C also poses a significant global health burden, with around 58 million people chronically infected worldwide and 1.5 million new infections each year. Between 23 and 39% of new hepatitis C infections occur among people who inject drugs, and injecting use accounts for one-third of all hepatitis C-related deaths globally. Access to treatment for hepatitis C is hindered by high cost, but also, importantly, by legal and structural barriers, as well as stigma and discrimination against people who use drugs. To address these pressing issues, we must adopt and implement evidence-based, human rights-centered, and health-oriented approaches to drug policy. The UN system common position on drugs calls for partnerships prioritizing these principles. The international guidelines on human rights and drug policy developed collaboratively by UNDP and the University of Essex, endorsed by UNAIDS, OHCHR, and WHO, offer a roadmap for action. These guidelines have demonstrated positive impact in countries like Albania, Colombia, Ghana, and are being implemented in the Housing First project in Brazil as we speak. Their recognition by the UN Human Rights Council, the European Union, and the Council of Europe further emphasize their significance. The guidelines emphasize the need to repeal or amend laws impeding access to controlled substances for medical purposes and harm reduction services. They underscore the importance of international human rights law, including the right to health, housing, and non-discrimination. Moreover, the guidelines promote voluntary access to harm reduction services, facilities, and information. We are witnessing a shift towards decriminalization and rights and health-based approaches in various countries, from Thailand to Mexico, from Switzerland to Cote d'Ivoire. While progress is being made, it's happening slowly and incrementally. To effectively address global drug issues, including those related to HIV, health and development, we need a paradigm shift. At UNDP, we remain committed to incorporating the health and development dimensions of drug policy in our partnerships on the SDGs. Let us join forces to align drug control mechanisms with health and development priorities. Together, we can make a meaningful impact on the lives of people and communities, ensuring that no one is left behind. Thank you. That was Boyan Konstantinov, Policy Specialist in HIV, Health and Development at the UN Development Program, speaking December 4th before the UN's Commission on Narcotic Drugs during thematic discussions on progress made in addressing challenges identified by CND in its 2019 ministerial declaration. You're listening to Prison Pipeline. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh.
Nazneen Damji is the policy advisor for gender equality, HIV and health at UN Women. Worldwide, one third of all people who use drugs are women, and this proportion is on the rise. Although few countries report sex disaggregated data on the issue, available data indicates that women who inject drugs have a greater vulnerability than men to HIV, hepatitis C and other blood-borne infections. In 30 countries reporting data, the pooled HIV prevalence among women was 13 percent, compared to 9 percent among men. Women's heightened risk and vulnerability to HIV transmission does not happen in a vacuum. Gender inequality and punitive drug policy together create intersecting injustices where women who use drugs face daily challenges in realizing their rights to health and safety. Women who use drugs face immense stigma from their families and communities, and this only serves as a barrier to reliable information and support. Gender-based violence is estimated to be two to five times higher among women who use drugs than among women who do not. Violence is also linked to elevated rates of needle and syringe sharing, inconsistent condom use, fatal overdose, and limited access to harm reduction and HIV and STI prevention services. Service providers, however, continue to remain largely gender blind to factors that increase health risks for women who use drugs. Addressing these and other barriers requires gender-responsive, rights-based, and intersectional approaches to harm reduction, drug use, health, and HIV. Let me highlight five areas to prioritize. First, women's overlapping identities and diverse lived experiences must be considered in order to fully understand the challenges that they face, elevate the solutions they have pioneered, and develop responses that can positively impact women's health. Second, countries need to invest in sex and age disaggregated data and gender analysis to monitor and address the impact of multiple forms of discrimination towards women who use drugs. We're pleased that the MOU signed between UN Women and UNODC provides for advancing efforts to collect data and undertake research and analysis to surface the challenges faced by women. Our joint efforts will ensure we make strides in the collection of sex disaggregated data and responding appropriately. Third, we need flexible and comprehensive approaches attuned to the needs of women who use drugs. These must be developed and invested in. For example, in, for example integrated gender-based violence and sexual and reproductive health services into harm reduction and HIV prevention efforts can contribute to delivering more targeted services. Fourth, reforming discriminatory laws and practices that further marginalize women who use drugs and hinder their access to HIV services must be prioritized. And finally, women's leadership matters. Women who use drugs are too often unrepresented or underrepresented in decision-making that affects their lives and well-being. Their meaningful involvement is indispensable to developing effective national strategies and programs on drug use and HIV. In sum, then, investing in women as leaders and decision makers, along with gender responsive research, policies, and multi sectoral approaches, are vital for ensuring that we respond to the priorities identified by women themselves and in turn deliver on the SDGs. UN Women stands ready to support this effort. That was Nazneen Damji, Policy Advisor for Gender Equality, HIV, and Health at UN Women. Ann Fordham is the Executive Director of the International Drug Policy Consortium. Mr. Chair, Firstly, thank you for your continued commitment to civil society engagement in this forum. Civil society plays a fundamental role in bringing evidence, lived experiences, and the reality of policy impacts to these discussions. 
Member states and UN bodies have a responsibility to honestly listen to the evidence and realities that civil society and affected communities bring to this commission and to reflect on how to reform a global system that has so clearly failed. Yesterday, IDPC launched a shadow report to evaluate progress made by the international community in addressing the 12 challenges identified in the 2019 Ministerial Declaration, drawing on data from the UN, governments, civil society and academia. The sobering conclusion is that little to no progress has been made and the situation remains grave. This has been echoed strongly by several member state delegations here in this very session. Despite billions spent every year on drug law enforcement, the illegal market is thriving and militarized responses are fueling violence and conflict. Drug-related deaths remain at historical highs, driven in many places by a deadly, toxic and unpredictable drug supply, while access to harm reduction, treatment and other support services falls dramatically short of what is needed. Our report also highlights that in all regions, the human rights impacts of drug control have either worsened or remained unchanged. These abuses are widespread and range from the ongoing use of the death penalty, extrajudicial killings, arbitrary arrest and detention, mass incarceration, and cases of torture masquerading as treatment. There is also widespread discrimination on the basis of race, gender, age, and socioeconomic status. More positively, an increasing number of jurisdictions have adopted reforms such as decriminalization and other alternatives to prison or punishment, while others have moved towards the responsible legal regulation of drugs. The number of countries adopting harm reduction approaches has also increased. Given the situation, the international community has a responsibility to use the midterm review as a key moment to reflect upon and review and reform the global drug control regime. Our report offers many detailed recommendations for the way forward, but today I will focus on three. First, the system needs to move away from a paradigm based on punishment that has brought untold deaths, as we have heard today. Member states should establish a multi-stakeholder initiative with participation from civil society, academia and relevant UN agencies to explore the options to review the UN drug control treaties in order to modernize them and align them with health, human rights and development obligations. This will also require leaving behind as a harmful and outdated relic the goal of achieving a society free of drug abuse. Secondly, member states should acknowledge that legal regulation is now a reality. UN agencies need to stop turning a blind eye to legal regulation and elaborate guidance on how to implement it in a way that responds to health, human rights, development, environmental and social justice concerns. Finally, for the midterm review itself, the debate and outcome document should welcome the landmark report of the Office of the High Commissioner on Human Rights, as well as welcoming the engagement and contributions of all relevant UN entities. The outcome document should incorporate new language agreed at the CND, as well as other UN fora on human rights, racial justice, on the rights of indigenous peoples, and on harm reduction.
In the debate and the outcome document, member states should call for the systematic involvement of civil society in the design, implementation, monitoring and evaluation and drug policies at the national, regional and international levels. The outcome document should update the list of challenges from the 2019 ministerial declaration based on current realities. These should then be reflected in the new work plan of the thematic CND intersessional meetings for the period 2024 to 2029 and be closely aligned with the achievement of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. In conclusion, we see how the realities of the world drug situation are being reflected in, his, in the historical drug policy resolutions and reports that come from New York and Geneva. The CND needs to catch up with these developments or risk becoming irrelevant. A reconsideration of consensus-based policy might be necessary in order to bring to reality the goal of protecting the health and welfare of humankind. IDPC's shadow report is available on our website, www.idpc.net. We welcome questions, comments, and dialogue on its findings. Thank you for your consideration. That was Ann Fordham, Executive Director of the International Drug Policy Consortium, speaking December 6th before the UN's Commission on Narcotic Drugs during thematic discussions on progress made in addressing challenges identified by CND in its 2019 ministerial declaration. CND will hold its midterm review on March 14th and 15th in 2024. And for now, that's it. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Prison Pipeline. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. Join us again next week for another edition of Prison Pipeline. For now, this is Doug McVeigh saying so long. So long. Just a soul